Kia ora, welcome to the Book Club of Banter and Happy New Year. It is 2024 uh, and we have so much that we're looking forward to this year. There's so many great books coming out that we can't wait to get our hands on. Uh, in our next episode, we will be all together talking about the books that we've read and enjoyed over the Christmas summer holiday break. And there's been some absolute crackers. But I can't think of a better way to start 2024 than sharing this episode with you. I was very lucky to have a chat to uh, an incredible New Zealand author who also happens to be lucky for us, a local author. I spoke to her towards the end of last year and you're in for a real treat. Fiona Sussman is well known to many of you. She's a best-selling author here in New Zealand and not only is she a fabulous writer, but she is one of the most genuine, nicest people that I am lucky enough to know. We have a great chat. You are going to love this, I know. So without further ado, let's get into our first episode for 2024. Fiona, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, you've got a wonderful accent, and I'm aware you grew up in South Africa. Can you tell us about your childhood there? Uh, were you always interested in reading and writing, and what were your influences growing up? Yeah, well, I was born in um, apartheid South Africa in Johannesburg to a Scottish dad and an Italian mom, um, both of whom I think um, – impacted quite significantly on the direction my life took. My dad was a publisher. He was a head of William Heinemann Publishing. So um, I grew up really, sort of was born into this wonderful world of books. You know, he would arrive home every night um, in his little navy blue triumph with books and mm -hmm. the boot of his car. And he and my mom would hold these amazing um literary cocktail parties. My brother wow. and I would sit listening in awe in our PJs as authors such as Frank Muir and Wilbur Smith held court. So I think, uh, yeah, I definitely sort of fell in love with the written word at an early age. My mom, um, from her, I guess, I inherited a passion for the underdog story. She had an amazing strong moral compass. Um, her own dad had escaped um, Turin under Mussolini's reign and taken his wife out to South Africa. And my mom really helped interpret for us um, the horrors of the apartheid regime and what we were witnessing around us. And so I think um, from a very early age, I was just always, you know, aware of what feeling helpless, I think, feeling helpless against this massive regime and trying to do things in one's own small way, but always um, realizing that it was just such a small part of um, mm. something bigger. So I think that, um, yeah, my love of the written word and then my desire to um, impact positively or shine a light on the underdog story or those forced to navigate the periphery mm. to sort of significant influences. When did you come out to New Zealand? Um, only when I was 25. So oh, okay. um, growing up in Africa was, was wonderful as well. You know, there's mm -hmm. just one it, sort of long holidays in um, the game parks and, you know, um, endless sort of 
afternoons and swimming mm, pools. Beautiful weather. Beautiful weather, <laughs> huge boxes of mangoes and lychees. Oh, and I was always very passionate about staying there. And then um, I landed up falling in love <laughs> with who would my husband-to-be, who was um, just about to immigrate to a little country somewhere in the Pacific, oh, New Zealand. Wow. And um, so we wrote for the whole year. And at the end of one of my university, at the end, yeah, univer as university holidays began, he sent me a ticket and said, come and visit. Wow. And that's how I, I never, never returned. <laughs> that's a great love story. <laughs> I love that. Oh, he, he took me off to do the Milford track um, and sort of bought the, he implied me with these huge, Black at Central Otago cherries, and mm -hmm. I thought, gosh, I'd arrived in heaven. And yeah. so it was a lovely way to begin um, a place in a country, was you know, as in newlyweds, and in many ways, it just felt like a yeah, beautiful country mm -hmm. to come to. And did you go back to South Africa frequently? No, in fact, it was about 19 years before we went back. We took um, our kids back so that they could see where we'd come from, mm -hmm. and that was wonderful because at that stage, um, it was now. Post-apartheid, mm -hmm. and so it was. We went all the way from the game reserves all the way down to the Cape with our kids, and it was actually as I had touched foot on, um, you know, the uh, got off the plane and was just aware of this instant affinity with the smells and with, oh. with Africa, and so you realise it's always in your blood. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so when you came to New Zealand and you trained. Medicine. Yes. How did that come about? Um, so, in fact, I had begun my training in South Africa. Ah, okay. So I grew up with, I guess I didn't know expressly I wanted to be a writer, but I had, you know, I knew that I wanted to do something with words and um, dropped science at school and focused on the languages and um, was all set to do a Bachelor of Arts um, when I, after school. And then in my final year of school in my dad who was 46 at the time was diagnosed with stomach cancer and um, we were looked after as a family by this just amazing GP a man by the name of Paul Davis mm -hmm. um, and he just looked after us in such a holistic way and he was also just a remarkable human I mean he um, was hugely involved in very concrete ways of opposing apartheid so he would testify against the government if detainees were tortured and died in custody, often at great personal risk to himself and his family. So he was someone I held in huge high regard. And mm -hmm. so I thought, well, after my Bachelor of Arts, I think I would like to do medicine. And, and so I began, I finished my BA and then began med, um, studying medicine, which I loved from day one. And I was in my fourth year when I met Luigi, my husband. Oh, okay. And he was this year on the wall and he was just about to come to New Zealand. <laughs> so I finished my degree here. I had to jump over a few hurdles mm -hmm. and then I came out as an Auckland GP. And you've worked, worked as a GP for? Yes, I worked for, I stepped out of medicine 10 years after I graduated. So okay. in that time it was GPing in Waiaki Medical Practice and I was also worked with family planning. Okay. And then um, we had to do some work overseas for, for Luigi, my husband's surgical mm -hmm. training. But I yeah, graduated in 1992 and I um, stepped out of medicine in 2003. Mm -hmm. And were you writing at all during that time? No, 
So, um, in fact, that was quite one of the main reasons. One, there were two real main reasons why um, I took a year, what was initially going to be a year out of medicine. Um, the one was I was really missing a creative outlet. And right. I am quite a perfectionist. And um, certainly for me, medicine was a vocation. And, you know, there was a lot, I spent a lot of time reading um around the work mm -hmm. I was doing. So there wasn't a lot of time for, um, you know, reading fiction, which I missed, and and then similarly writing. And at the same, then my young family came along, mm -hmm. and I found that I found myself quite conflicted because um, I very much wanted to be um, a hands-on mum, raising my kids, my Husband's hours were very long and unforgiving in surgery, and um, I was missing a, this creative outlet. So I decided to take a year out, where I would be more at home with the children at the same time write a book, which is something I'd dreamt of doing for Fantastic. a long time. And yeah, well, yeah. that's twenty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and which, did you write a book in that year? I did. I started a book. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've still got very vivid memories of that first day dropping the kids at school and um, putting the answer phone on and sitting down at my desk and saying okay right you know let's begin mm -hmm. and thinking gosh how do I go about this you know how do I write a book yeah. and I did find that um yeah quite challenging it was quite hard it was quite lonely all of a sudden from seeing patients every 15 minutes I was on my own for six to seven hours in a study not knowing really whether I was any good at it it's discipline though I, I think that's what I I, was very, I I felt I had to do it to make a success, but you know mm -hmm. what I mean? I felt partly because of the guilt, I felt that maybe not doing medicine that year. I wanted to make, you know, make give sure. Give it a real go. Give it a real go. And the book that began that year would be finally published 10 years later. So yeah. it was a long um, yeah. Yeah, gestation. Um, and was that Shifting Colours or another book? It was. Yes. Okay. Yes. So Shifting Colours was your first novel. And uh, I can see, having just spoken to you now, perhaps what inspired it, but could you, could you tell the listeners a little bit about what that story is about yes. and the inspiration behind it? Well, Shifting it's. Colours tells the story of a little black girl, Miriam, who captures the heart of a white couple um, while her mother is working as a maid for them in the white suburbs of Johannesburg during apartheid. And after the first uprisings in the townships, the Sharpeville uprisings, um, this couple decide they want to leave South Africa and they are childless and they ask Miriam's mother if they can take Miriam with them. And the decision Miriam's mother makes is one she makes out of love because she imagines that her daughter will have a far better life. But in fact, it's a decision that comes to haunt all the players mm -hmm. afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I guess on on one level, it was my first opportunity I could use to sort of shout out from the rooftops my abhorrence for apartheid. Mm -hmm. On another, it's... Um, a story about the enduring love between a mother and a daughter. Okay. And it also touches on a theme which really recurs in a lot of my books, the theme of what comprises an individual's identity. Um, I remember hearing, I think it was um, the plastic surgeon Joan Chapel talk about the five layers of skin, you know, your actual skin, your clothing, 
your family, your culture, and your country. And if you strip any one of those layers from the individual, it impacts on the identity. And so I wanted to look at that kind of morally complex issue of taking a child out of their culture and family to somewhere else. Mm. And so, yeah, excellent. Yeah. Did you have to do a lot of, sort of research or interviewing? Or did you... No, I drew quite a lot um, on my experiences growing mm. up in South Africa. And then always there's a lot of reading that goes into um, just to make sure one's getting the facts correct. But certainly the emotional impetus for the book um, was quite organic. So mm. did you feel quite emotional writing it? I did. Imagine it would have brought up all sorts of emotions and memories. And absolute things yeah. I had forgotten. Mm. And I found, I mean, because I had been so happy and settled here in New Zealand and it certainly did, it suddenly did open up a lot of memories. Mm. And, but it is the book that remains dearest to me. Obviously, if I think if I were to look at it now, I would probably wonder, oh, I could improve <laughs> on things. But for me, it's, it's the story that's always been closest to my heart. And then your next book, The Last Time We Spoke, uh, received rave reviews and won the Nio Marsh Award for Best Crime Novel. Congratulations. Uh, so where did the idea for that story come from? Well, so I had been in New Zealand, I think, almost about 25 years by that stage. And there'd been a spate of very brutal crimes um, in the late 90s, some home invasions and some um, crimes committed by very young people. And they would really, they would do the news cycle and then they would be dropped to make way for the next piece of news. And I found myself unable to move on as easily that these stories were really impacting me. And I remember um, having lots of questions in my head and thinking, firstly, how would someone who'd been a victim of such a crime ever go on to navigate a meaningful life afterwards? And also what had happened in a youngster's life to set them on a path to murder? Mm. So very early on I had these two voices in my head, a middle-aged farmer's wife um, and a young illiterate gang prospecting teen. And I was terrified to write the story I felt, you know, one, <laughs> not even, you know, theoretically born in this country. And But for me I've always believed you should have, you should be able to write freely as part of the creative process so long as you do so with dignity and respect. And for me, that involved a lot of research. And so I could very easily envisage Carla, the middle-aged farmer's wife's life, but being the young illiterate teen, his world was really foreign to me. And so mm. I embarked on about two years of research. Oh, really? So I went out on police patrol. I visited prisons across the North Island. I read widely the social commentators, Celia Lashley and Nigel Latter. Yeah. Went to victim support, spoke to form, former gang members. Um, and after about two years, actually, I was waiting in the car to pick up the kids and find myself rapping. And I thought, okay, maybe I've done e enough. <laughs> <laughs> and when I'd written the book, I did give it to two of my Māori colleagues, um, a Māori playwright and a gentleman who works with um, youth in prisons. And um, I guess as a sensitivity read, but mm -hmm. also for them to, you know, and validate it and, and, um, Rene Mahi said, you know, thank me for channeling Hutapuna and Artur. And for me, that was very... Yeah, um, congratulations. I was 
But I didn't, I was gobsmacked when it won the award because I didn't think of it as a crime novel. You know, I thought of it as a social justice novel. And so that was quite a, because you kind of, the story follows, it opens with a brutal home invasion and follows um, in the bleak aftermath the lives of both the perpetrator and the victim until their lives again intersect with kind of surprising consequences. Mm. And it's, it's a story about peeling back the headlines. It's about, you know, shining light in dark places. And so for me, I had conceptualized it as a social justice novel. But um, as a result of the award, I came to understand actually how much how much writing and the breadth of writing that falls under the fiction under the banner of of crime fiction. I agree. Yeah, and that was so quite bold, isn't it? So yeah. yeah. Do you read a lot of books in that genre? No. So mm. I um. So I'm not a crime series reader, but the the crime fiction I enjoy is. The, the fiction that sort of shines a light on a particular society or issues in a society because mm, often crime is or, representative yeah. of what's going on at the time. Mm -hmm. And so if I think of some of the crime books I've enjoyed, um, well, just that what's just come out very recently, Better the Blood by Michael Bennett, mm -hmm. which is looking at colonisation here. Um, this bloody project set in a crofting community in the UK. Um, Marla Nunn's book, A Beautiful Place to Die, was actually set in her detective is in South Africa just pre-apartheid. And so I, I'm fascinated by those kind of crime stories. Mm -hmm. And and the why done it so much as the who done it. I love it when you know, crime books explore the, the psyche and what's tipped someone into doing something. Mm. Mm. So the, the next novel you wrote after <laughs> that was a complete departure. <laughs> uh, addressed to Greta, it won the New Zealand Book Lovers Best Adult Fiction Award in 2021. And it's, or you might be best better at describing it than me, but it has an endearing uh, woman at the centre of the story it's funny, it's uplifting, it's a little bit quirky. For me, it was, you know, about friendship and love and it's like, it's, where did it come from? I, just, <laughs> I have asked myself that. <laughs> and I think my subconscious must have been working over time because I think my, my daughter would often say to me, oh, mom, you've got to write a happy story. <laughs> so I think that that was in the back of my mind. But I was out on a run one morning when Greta fell into my head almost fully formed, this sort of um, socially anxious 30-something woman who'd spent so much of her life trying to be the Greta other people wanted her to be. Mm -hmm. She didn't really know who she was anymore. And so it, in many ways this was a gift but the scary bit was that I had no sense of the narrative arc whereas normally when I get an idea for a book it's a rough idea of the story right so the writing of it was very different to my previous two I had to really let Greta lead um, and as she filled her skin the story um, took shape and so it was a I had a lot of fun writing it mm -hmm. there were times when I started to I'd sort of come out and think oh is that funny and then because Greta can be unwittingly funny and then I would think oh I'm going to it's going to sound contrived if I become aware of 
so I would try and not write funny. I would just slip back into her skin mm -hmm. and try and navigate the way. So it was, I was completely immersed. And I think, you know, now Greta is so alive in my head. You know, mm. if she were to walk through the door tomorrow. <laughs> <I would. laughs> and did she, was the travel always part of the story? Or did, again, did she just take you places you didn't know you were going to go? Well, she, all the places Greta goes, I have been, I, generally cannot write easily without having for setting I like to have been to places but I wasn't as these as the various because the itinerary that the story is really that Greta's friend her only true friend Walter who has passed by the time the book opens he has also navigated the periphery um, and of life and he can see what Greta needs to kind of break free of the shackles of a very safe life and so the gift he gives her which in his will is an all-expenses-played holiday, which on the surface sounds just wonderful. But in fact, the catch is, is that the itinerary will remain a secret and that's in length of time, Greta will be away and the destinations. And so sort of embodied in that gift is uncertainty that she has to learn to embrace. Mm. And so as I as Greta would move from one destination to the next, and each destination is heralded by a letter from Walter to Greta that he's written before he died. I think, oh, yeah, of course she's going to go there. <laughs> so I was, you know, it, as I say, it was very much like a book that um, it's a very different way of writing, but it was such a pleasure to actually, it was almost like the character the character would take the lead and then I would respond and then it was a it was Fantastic. a wonder. Yeah. <laughs> do you think you needed that? Do you, after after um, the last time we spoke, do you think you needed a change of something lighter? And I, I think in retrospect, thinking back on it, I probably did because mm -hmm. I was certainly, the last time we spoke was quite a, a hard book to write mm -hmm. and um, I felt changed having written it. And so I think this was a, Delight, it was a lot of fun. And then uh, you wrote uh, A Doctor's Wife, yeah. which I'm interested actually in hearing. How would you describe that if you had to put it in a genre? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the first book I have ever sat down to deliberately write within a genre okay. so for me it was I was thinking I was going to expressly write within the crime genre but in fact it is more of it's also a psychological drama really and um, the reason how that came about is going back to the last time we spoke that award um, I as a result of the Nile Marsh Award I got to go over to bloody Scotland which is this crime writing festival in Stirling and it was the most incredible experience I was um, so warmly embraced by the crime writing community there and that was there that I really discovered you know this as we were talking about this breadth that falls under the banner of crime mm. fiction from your cosy murder mysteries and your police procedurals all the way through to your more literary crime reflecting on social injustices. And so I came home definitely knowing I'd been wooed to the darker side and that I wanted <laughs> to write. I wanted to try and write with the Dijonga. So I sat down and obviously, again, my subconscious was on the lookout for a um, – a story and I think that I, w I sort of had a quiet chuckle to myself when I realized I was going to set it against a medical backdrop because mm -hmm. I thought it would be the first <laughs> time I was tying together these two sort of disparate 
aspects of my life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you set it um, pretty much outside the doors of this bookshop. <laughs> <laughs> Was that deliberate yeah. too? Did you think I want to yes. set it close to home? Close to home. Mm-hmm. I think. What I really wanted it to be was, um, first I wanted the reader to feel that sort of there but for the grace of God go I. Mm. I wanted it to be a very regular setting where, you know, you have your potter and your doctor and your journalist and just people one might meet on any given day. Um, and I guess what I was fascinated in, as opposed to it being a James Bond villain with milky eyes, it was what would turn someone in a very regular setting to step outside the law, what sort mm-hmm. of influences or stressors in their middle class life might have been changed. Mm-hmm. And so that was, yeah, where it came from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was great. Great to have. I had a lot of customers come back to say that they'd loved it, but mm-hmm. particularly they loved that they could picture exactly where the characters were because mm-hmm. it was um, in particular the book. The walk, the way, walk. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did that walk a few times for the research. <laughs> I think it, I actually think it's important we do reflect our settings um, in our books. I think you know for some reason you know New York and London are always considered sexy settings mm, for books, mm. but in fact I think it's great. A lot of people really enjoy reading about things that they can you know that resonate yeah, with yeah, them. That's right. Settings. Yeah. Um, do you have a particular writing process? Has it changed over the years? Um, do you, I guess, depending on the book, do you, is there much plotting involved? So I, my writing process is very definitely every day, literally um, Monday to Friday, I sit down at my desk and pray. <laughs> I think I just needed that that structure because it's so easy for other things to take precedent and certainly when you're starting out you know you almost have the sense of it being a hobby and so I just needed mm. to treat it like a job go into an office so I write every day and it was easy with the first book in that um I didn't really have all that goes with being a published writer surrounding it whether that's doing talks or mentoring students or going to festivals so um that that was easier. Now I have to really keep all of that part of life admin to the afternoons. Mm-hmm. And then I try now and read for an hour or two at the end of a day as well. Mm-hmm. But I do sit down and I, plotting, I'm not a plotter per se. I'm what they you know, call a pantser going by the seat of my pants. But with this book, it was the last um, book, The Doctor's Wife, I had to really, because it was almost like deconstructing in reverse. I had to know that all the clues would add up in the end and then dismantle the puzzle backwards really. Um, of course, things still take their own shape you know mm-hmm. you have to rejig things but there was a lot more planning in this last one than there have been has mm-hmm. been before is there a particular part of the writing process that you enjoy and conversely find <laughs> the most challenging <laughs> what i enjoy the the agency and the breadth of that really i um, the sky's the limit you can write about anything and, and so I really like that part of my job the sense that I can kind of direct where I want my work to go um, I hate first drafts I always sit down and then I think oh I've forgotten how hard this is and just the other day when I was writing my daughter said to me mom you've forgotten you always complain in the first draft and then it, I love the um refining and the multiple drafts afterwards but mm. there are times when it's just sheer slog and 
one has this notion of writers sitting down and writing beautifully when that, as you will well know, that mm. first draft is hard. Pain. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> On that note, <laughs> has, have you received any advice uh, from other writers or anyone over the past few years that you felt really resonated with you and has helped you with your writing? Definitely, I think um, write what matters to you write what the kind of book you want to read and don't try and pursue the zeitgeist because by the time your book is out that will have moved on and really we all I think I mean I always remain in awe of other writers talent and I think that is great and we need to read a lot but you've got to remember that in fact the most valuable thing you bring to your writing is your own unique voice and so that will be the most authentic when you're writing about what matters to you or just a book you would like to read mm, you know, I love that. It's entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. are you working on anything at the moment I'm sure you are <laughs> what are you working on now I amazingly, which I didn't think I would do, is I'm writing a second in the sequel. So The Doctor's Wife has an unlikely detective duo, Ramesh Bandara and Hilary Stark. And um, we've had a little bit of movie interest, which has been Ooh, a bit exciting. That's so exciting. <laughs> but which is, at the moment, I can't really say much more than that, but at that I have now, Ramesh Bandar and Hilary Stark are busy solving another crime. And <laughs> we'll see where that goes. But I'm loving, I really, as a couple, I enjoy, but when I say as a working partnership, I really enjoy them as characters. And so um, it's been fun to actually bring Go them back. Go back into that world. Yeah. yeah. Do you think the current... New Zealand fiction industry is in good shape at the moment. How are you feeling about it? I do. Certainly I think it's in a lot better shape than it was when I started out writing. I mean, for some reason, New Zealand writing has always been considered the poorer cousin, and I just think that we have such a wealth of talent and setting. And and so I've seen over the past, I don't know what, maybe decade, an amazing push towards promoting Kiwi writers and topics so I think that's really encouraging I mean I think we could still keep doing more I think sort of like in Iceland where they are hugely proud of and promote their writers and everybody gives everyone a gift at Christmas Eve from of the, a book a local writer you know there's mm. that whereas I think we still sometimes defer to thinking about the big names overseas mm. and I think we just need to keep encouraging our you know mm. literary community by reviews by promoting I mean you do a wonderful job in your shop of promoting local writers mm. even the libraries have been doing an amazing job recently they read Auckland yeah. um, so I think it is in much better getting, shape than it used to be getting in a good direction yeah, yeah. it frustrates me I still get the odd customer coming in and I'll start to talk about a book and I'll say, it's a New Zealand writer. Oh, no. No, yes. don't, don't New Zealand. That's right. I know. It's so frustrating. It is. Mm. I think one just has to drip away, you know, to, to slow change. Mm. Yeah. Oh, well, you've been very generous with your time. <laughs> I, it was wonderful to chat with you. I've got three sort of quick-fire questions yes. to, to wrap it up. Name two books you've read and loved in the last six months. Horse by Geraldine Brooks, mm -hmm. um, 
grand by Noel McCarthy. And they're talking about the third one, um, Claire Keegan, small things like, like these. Oh, oh, so good. <laughs> um, just amazing. Yeah. A treasure of a book. Mm, wow. Yeah. And a slightly quirky question to finish. Yeah. <laughs> one thing our listeners possibly don't know about you. <laughs> well, that I um, that I was not unconscious when a um, parachutist dressed as Father Christmas landed on a tree um, under which I was standing as a kid. The tree branch broke and knocked me out. But there was a really happy edit, but it's a long story. <laughs> I don't think anyone ever is going to top that. <laughs> wow, um, I totally didn't expect that. <laughs> oh, I've got a real picture in my head. <laughs> Oh, that's oh. wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, no, I so you. appreciate you coming along. Oh, I've really enjoyed that chat. Absolute pleasure. So have I.